everybody to our Good Friday candlelight service and candlelight. Wow. The ladies did a great job. Amen. Praise the Lord. And worship team you as well. We thank you. And so uh, we reflect on Good Friday, of course, the Lord's death on our behalf, the sinless one, God in human form, who knew no sin. He became sin on our behalf, that we might become right with God. And so um, first, there'll be a little context. Here's how the evening will unfold, a little context of what leads up to the cross. And then six men from staff, on staff here at The Rock, including myself, will take, uh, each one of us will take one of the seven statements that Jesus makes while he's dying on the cross. Those dying words are very significant, and each one has been allotted five minutes to reflect on that statement. And uh, then we'll take uh, communion together. So some context. Before 9 a.m., when Jesus lays down his life and is crucified, that Good Friday morning actually has started, as I mentioned, uh, late Thursday night. So Jesus has been up all Night. The ordeal began sometime around 11 p.m. Of course, you know that the Last Supper in the upper room has finished. And Jesus has addressed the disciples' epic fail when they were arguing about who would be greatest and who was greatest. So Jesus, uh, role model, he got up and, as you recall, washed the disciples' dirty feet. And he did that because he was teaching them that we needed to be cleansed from our sins, and he came for that very purpose, to be a servant, to take the form of a humble servant and go unto death to the cross on our behalf to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But he also did it to show us what true greatness is in the sight of God. He will say when he rises up, True greatness is whoever is the best at serving. Those are truly great people. And so the conversation at the table uh, was invaluable. And you have that in John 14, 15, and 16. Um, Jesus talks about the way to get to heaven. He says, I'm the way. If you know me, you know the way. Then he talks about the Holy Spirit who will be coming and to comfort us to be the spirit of Christ in our hearts to give us new life. And then he also talks about a new commandment. He says, a new commandment I give to you, to love one another as I have loved you. In other words, all the way to death, a new depth of loving one another. And of course, uh, he finished up the evening in establishing the new covenant with the cup and the bread. And he said, think of this as my broken body and the blood that I will spill out. And uh, the Old Testament was 
do this or die. The new covenant was trust me and live. And so finally, he said at the, the, that dinner, he gave them a heads up. He said, everyone will desert me. Peter, you will deny me. And someone here will betray me. So they sang a hymn, and off they went into the night under a full moon because the lunar, uh, the Hebrew calendar is tied, is lunar. And so there's always a full moon at Passover. And so through the Kidron Valley, up about a mile, they go to their favorite place, the Olive Grove, called Gethsemane. It's 11.30 p.m. Now, around midnight, Good Friday actually begins with agonizing prayer. And so um, the Bible says, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. It was there in the garden that he realized and was accepting the weight of not only our sins, but the sins of the entire world, uh, crushing him, as it were. So he asked Peter, James, and John, watch with me. I'm in agony unto death. So he went a little ways and he prayed. And he said, my father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, your will be done. Three times, and each time finding Peter, James, and John sleeping. And he said to them, couldn't you just Pray with me and watch with me one hour. He said, be on your guard. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Pray that you do not fall into temptation. So after praying, it was time. Judas arrives with the soldiers in tow. Jesus has some things to say. So he addresses first uh, his betrayer. And Judas approaches him and he says, is it really with a kiss that you betray the Son of God? Do what you came to do, friend. Right up to the end, reaching out to the betrayer, calling him friend. And then Jesus addressed the crowd. John said a cohort was sent out to arrest Jesus. A cohort in the Greek means 300 to 600 soldiers. So we got a few hundred people on the scene there. And Jesus rolls his eyes, as it were, and says, really, clubs and swords? You come after me like I'm leading a rebellion? To quote him, he said, you could have arrested me any time as I was peacefully doing what I always do peacefully. But this is your Hour, the hour that darkness reigns. Now, Jesus also addressed Peter, pulled out his sword, and was going to help fight and protect Jesus. And Jesus said, Peter, put your sword away. Don't you realize that I could petition the Father and have him send to me 12 legion of angels? One legion is 6,000. 12 legion is 72,000. He said, for my asking, I could have 72,000 angels right here helping. I don't need your sword. 
How else? How else would the scriptures be fulfilled? It has to go this way. This is the plan, Peter. Put your sword away. And then he turns, Jesus says one more thing. He says to the captain, who is it that you want? And he says, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am he. Which is really translated Yahweh means I am he. And they fall. Hundreds of them fall under the weight of the divine majesty and his presence. They fall before him when he acknowledges, here I am. So Jesus is led away for the first brief preliminary hearing with Annas, who is sort of retired. It's his son-in-law that's the official high priest, but he's also called the high priest. He is in retirement, as it were, but they take Jesus first to him and then to Caiaphas, the son-in-law, who's the official high priest. And going through the courtyard, Peter has found himself in a predicament. As they're going from Annas to Caiaphas, they pass through a courtyard where Peter's been warming himself by the fire. And some of the hostile crowd has recognized Peter and said, weren't you with Jesus? And he has denied it. And on the third time, they said, hey, your accent gives you away. We know you're from Galilee. And he says, I swear to God, I don't know the man. And just as Jesus was crossing through the courtyard, it says Jesus looked at him. And right after that, the rooster crowed and Peter went out and wept bitterly. Now, the mock trial is going to begin. It is 2 o'clock in the morning. There's an emergency session called with what is called the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court. Now, 2 o'clock in the morning, all of these men have gathered, and what goes on there is terrible. It goes on till much of the night, until about 5 a.m. or 6 a.m. even. False testimony, lots of charges, Jesus begins to answer. And he said, if you're really, Jesus speaking, he said, if you really want to know what my teaching is, ask anybody who's heard me. And the soldier standing next to Jesus punched him in the mouth and said, is that any way to talk to the high priest? And Jesus said, if I said something wrong, just tell me what it was. But if I speak the truth, why did you hit me? And so the high priest, Caiaphas, just says, okay, enough of this. I charge you under oath before the living God. You tell us right here and now, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus says, yes, it is as you say. And I'm telling you that you will all see the Son of Man. You will see me sitting on the right hand of the majesty on high and coming in the clouds of glory. That's when it all broke loose. The beatings, the death sentence for blasphemy, the mocking, the ordeal has started. It says, then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy, O Christ, who hit you? So we have Two mock trials already done. 
Now the, the sun is coming up. It's time for the last trial. Jesus was tried three times. And now we're going to the Romans. It's around 7 a.m. Now the Jews can't legally execute, legally. So they have to go to Pontius Pilate, who is the Roman governor. And so this is how Pilate gets involved. And Pilate is clearly uncomfortable. Three times through three different phases, Pilate is interrogating Jesus. And they have some very interesting conversation. But he comes out with this conclusion. He's done nothing wrong. He's innocent. But it says it three times. He's innocent. He's innocent. He's innocent. At the same time, in the morning, the Jewish priests on Passover morning are looking at the lambs that people have brought for sacrifice, for Passover. And they are to be inspected by the priests because they have to be, according to the Old Testament law, they have to be without blemish. You couldn't bring a diseased animal or a blind animal. It had to be perfect. And it was a a prophetic picture of Jesus' sinless perfection. You see, so while the lambs are being inspected in the temple by the priest, Pilate is inspecting the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and says, innocent, without blemish, he is the perfect sacrifice. So Pilate is uncomfortable because of one thing that was said. Why are you charging him? They said, we've got a law. He claimed to be the Son of God, and by this he must die. And it says, Pilate became even more afraid. So he sends him off to Herod. Across the courtyard, there's another official, King Herod, the same guy who executed John the Baptist. And this is where the crown of thorns, they strip him. They're still beating and mocking him. They put a purple gorgeous, it says, robe upon him, and they mock him and kneel before him and honor him as the king of the Jews. And Jesus says not one word to Herod. Herod is frustrated because he really wanted to see a miracle. So Herod sends him back to Pilate. And that day, the Bible says, Herod and Pilate, who were enemies, became friends over their rejection and despisal of Jesus, our Lord. So the last chance before he takes on the cross here, the last chance for Pilate was to go to the crowd and say, hey, it's holiday, time is Passover, and you guys have a tradition um, I could release. And he really wants them to go for Barabbas, who is in jail for insurrection, which just means he's like a terrorist. And uh, he, he brings him out and says, choose. And Pilate is saying, of course they're going to choose uh, Barabbas. They're not going to, you know, of course they're going to let Jesus go. They're not going to pick this murderer. But they pick the murderer. And listen to this. His name is Barabbas. It means son of the father. The son of the father is traded. Jesus is traded for Barabbas. All right, so that this condemned guilty murderer can become son of the father. But Jesus will swap his life. We are all made sons of the father because of the trade. 
that Jesus makes for us. He's our substitute. Amen. So it's just a beautiful thing. So, so when that fails, Pilate just hears this. If you release Jesus, you're no friend of Caesar's. That was it. He got a wash basin. He goes to the window. He washes his hands. And he says, well, you're not going to charge me with treason. We only have one king, they said. This is not our king. So you, don't you be playing around with that. So he washes his hands and he says, behold the man. Take him and crucify him. So Pilate orders that our Lord will be now flogged. Men died of that flogging from loss of blood. But Jesus bears up under it and carries a crossbeam that weighs about 70 pounds. Forget about the picture of this a feminine character in the art of Jesus because Jesus was a big man and he was strong because he carried that even partially after what he's been through. And so it's nine o'clock. It's time. Jesus is now crucified. But before he's crucified, I want you to remember he's been betrayed and deserted and denied by his friends He's been falsely arrested and slandered and falsely tried. He's been bit, beaten and spit upon and relentlessly marked, mocked and stripped and severely flogged. He's been up all night. He's had no food, no water, no sleep. And he's lost a lot of blood. And he lays down willingly on a piece of wood that he created by Christ, the Bible says, all things were created. He lays himself down and lets them nail him to a Roman cross. It's nine o'clock. Here come the statements. The first statement. So Luke 23, uh, verse 34, records the first prayer or statement, sometimes called, of Jesus. He says, Father... Forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. This first prayer that Jesus makes is incredibly simple and basic, but it shows us so much. In one sentence, we can see God's great love for us and the mercy as well. There are three things to look and see in this statement. The first one is that he's calling upon his father. Secondly, he's asking his father to forgive his executioners. And third, he gives a reason why. They should be shown that mercy, that they really don't know what they're doing. Jesus starts his prayer as he tells us all to do in the Lord's Prayer, our Father. This is such an important practice because by starting our prayers this way, we remind ourselves of who God is to us. He's our loving Father. He loves us so much. Dads, you can relate to this. The Father's love it's strong. It, it causes them to provide for the family. It gives you that urge to protect your family. Oftentimes, as kids, we don't always see or understand all that our dad does. I know for me, looking back, I can think of all of the early mornings or late nights that my dad would be working just so he could be available for his family during the day. Or... Every morning in high school, he'd offer to give me a ride to school when school was a five-minute walk down the road. 
just because he wanted to spend that extra time with me. Father's love is just something that is so powerful. And so if we actually stop to look and realize that the Father is allowing his one and only Son to be nailed to a cross on our sakes, for our behalf, God's love for us must be great. There's just not much to it other than that. In Romans chapter 8, it says we're supposed to call out to our Abba, Father. Abba is a very sweet and tender, soft word. It means Papa. God wants us to see him as our Papa, Father. Papa, God. I think it's just incredibly comforting to realize that we have a Papa, God, who is all-powerful and a help to us in times of trouble. I think we'd all pray a little bit more if we suddenly remembered that our God is a Papa God, a Father who loves us so much. We can look and see that Jesus' prayer request is not for himself as it would be for a lot of us. He's praying for his executioners. He's going, Father, forgive them. It's not easy to pray for those who hurt you, especially in this case, those who are attempting to murder him. It's a whole lot easier to wish for bad things upon those who offend us and hurt us. The disciples had a bad, or we can see this with the disciples, had a bad attitude towards some of the Samaritans. And they wanted to call it on fire from heaven. Jesus had to rebuke them in this. It's because we don't have a natural inclination of forgiveness in us. It's just not our human nature. We prefer revenge. It's feels much better, it comes much quicker and easier. But Jesus, he shows us what it really means to forgive. And as his children, we're supposed to imitate him. We can look at Stephen in Acts chapter 7 as he's being martyred, as they're throwing the rocks at him, as they're piling up. And through all of this, Stephen goes, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And again, in the Old Testament, we can look at Joseph, who was sold into slavery, left for dead, and sent to another country by his own brothers. And yet, Joseph can look and see all the good that God made out of it and was able to forgive his brothers from the bottom of his heart. He truly forgave them. For us as Christians, forgiveness is not an option that we can decide whether or not we want to give. Jesus says that if we want to be forgiven ourselves, we must be able to forgive. Pastor David Guzik, he says that when we pray like this for our enemies, we make the promise of forgiveness to God, not to the people who wronged us. By making the promise to God, we keep our hearts free from the cancer of resentment and keep ourselves ready to forgive. Finally, we can look at why Jesus said that they qualify for this mercy he says, forgive them because they do not know what they do. Certainly no one there on that morning realized what they were doing to its full extent and certainly not to who they were doing it to. It's worth noting that Jesus puts his enemies in the best possible light to God. We're supposed to do the same. Give people the benefit of the doubt. Think that maybe what they're doing isn't fully intentional. Sometimes it's easier if we put ourselves in other people's shoes and not take things quite so personally. 
Give them a little bit more compassion. Not get so hurt or so angry so quickly. Just to think that maybe it wasn't intentional. The question I had to ask myself a lot while I was studying this was, who am I holding bitterness against? Who do I need to forgive? Who has wronged me? Who do I need to give a little bit more slack to? Who do I need to grant forgiveness? And so now I pose that same thing to you. Who has hurt you? Maybe we can say the same thing about our enemies, those who hurt us, that they didn't really know what they were doing at the time. Certainly, Jesus, who can say this about his executioners, if he can do that, I think we can all say that about those who have hurt us to a significantly lesser degree. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Luke 23, 39 through 43. One of the thieves who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other thief rebuked him. Do you not fear God? He said, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. Now, in studying for this, I had to think, what kind of thief am I? So I want to start by asking, what kind of thief are you? We see here in the story of the crucifixion that there were two thieves that were crucified with Jesus. And their responses to who Jesus is are representative of all people's reactions and responses to Jesus. You see, there are only two types of people in this world, and we're going to look at both of them here as we unpack the second of Jesus' statements from the cross. <clears throat> the first of these two types of people are represented by the thief on Jesus' left. This thief understood that Jesus was at least claiming to be the Messiah, but instead of turning to the one who could have saved him, he instead insults him, hurls insults, and mocks Jesus, saying, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Why? I, I don't understand. It's, it was over for him. It wasn't as if he was saying, I want to go live my life the way I want to live my life. He was dying on a cross. It doesn't make any sense. Until you read... 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, foolishness, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. So let's take a look at the thief on the right. Interestingly enough, we find in Matthew and Mark's accounts of the crucifixion that both thieves were mocking Jesus, which brings up a great point. We were all once dead in our sins, and not, there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. This thief on the right had a change of heart and went from mocking Jesus to rebuking his sinful companion, confessing his own sin, declares Jesus to be sinless, demonstrates faith, and confesses Christ, calling him Lord. Looks a lot like our prayer of salvation, doesn't it? Now we, see, we have seen the two different responses from two men with the same crime, with the same sentence, both of which actually cry out to call out to Jesus, asking him to save them. But the difference in Jesus' response was determined by the difference in the condition of their hearts. Do you know what Jesus said to the thief on the left? 
Nothing. He said absolutely nothing. But to the thief on the right, he said, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. I love what Jesus says here because we get a nugget of theology. If there is any example that salvation is by grace through faith, this not of yourselves it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, Ephesians 2.8, it's right here. There is nothing you can do in and of yourself. It is only through faith in Jesus that we are saved. The thief did not have a chance to live 30 years as a Christian, live a good life. In fact, he lived a terrible life, a violent life, and was being crucified justly for it. And yet, Jesus welcomes him in, saying, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. The other gem of doctrine we learn here is that there is no purgatory. But in fact, at the moment of death, we'll be in the presence of the Lord. It's just so encouraging to me. So in summation, I want to ask you, leave you with a couple of questions. First, what kind of thief are you? Are you the thief on the left who hardened his heart? Or are you the thief on the right who repented and received eternal life? And second, are you trying to earn your way to heaven? Or are you like the thief on the right saying, Lord, I deserve to die, but remember me when you come into your kingdom. I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. John records under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit his account of watching Jesus die on the cross. In John 19.25, he says this, Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Jesus had been rejected by his own people. As we learned earlier, he had been betrayed by one of his own disciples, and he had been completely abandoned by most all of the rest of his disciples. Below him, the Roman soldiers who had pinned him to the cross were now gambling and dividing his clothes. And in their minds, that's the only thing Jesus had of worth to offer them. People are passing by now in front of the cross of Jesus on this thoroughfare, and they're hurling insults. And as you can imagine, this is a very uh, violent event. And so emotions are high no matter what you believe of Jesus. And some of the things the crowds and the, the soldiers shouted are recorded in Scripture. We hear uh, these things come out like, like, if you're really the Messiah, save yourself. If you're really God, prove it to us. Come down off that cross, and then we'll believe you. And I sense almost a justification of themselves in those words. They're trying to justify what they did to Jesus, how they treated Jesus. And the, the thieves on either side of Jesus are hurling curses to the crowds. The crowds are mocking them and Jesus back. It's a horrible mess of an affair. It's violent. It, there's agony. There's moans. There's screams. It's a nightmare. And this is how the world treated Jesus. This was all part of the Father's plan, though, to save us. 
So John records this second account here before you. He says, there is something else there that happened because I was there. Something you wouldn't even have noticed because they weren't saying anything. They were silent. And there wasn't a lot of them. They weren't walking around or passing by. They were there. And what's the first words he says? He says, near the cross of Jesus. This took place near the cross of Jesus. Near the cross of Jesus stood people who were with him to the end, who cared about him no matter what. In the midst of the insults, the persecution, the violence, in the midst of all of this, they stood by him. There were plenty of people when he was handing out free food and healing the multitudes and teaching and, uh, and all these things. People would flock to him. But when it comes to the cross of Jesus Christ, you see who really stands by Jesus. So they stood close by him. And now Jesus is in severe pain. If you're familiar at all with crucifixion and what that means, you, you essentially die from suffocation. The position and manner in which you're stretched out, you have to force yourself up off of your ankles to get a deep breath. And the pain caused by your ankles supported by a nail that was driven in between them was all you had to push off of. And so it was painful, and you felt and earned and worked for every single breath you took. So this is why Jesus isn't saying a lot on the cross. It took effort and energy, and his life was fleeting from him. But he looks over, and he sees someone. In the first account, John lists, says, he sees his mother standing there. His mother Three times in these two verses, his mother is mentioned. Mom, mom, mom. Not Mary, the mother of Jesus. Not Mary, the descendant of David. Not Mary this or Mary... He said, no, this is his mom. She is standing there as a mother. She is feeling this pain with him. She is powerless to do anything about it. And that is the ultimate thing I think a mother could ever experience in torment on this earth is watching her son be killed in front of her and be completely powerless to do anything about it. They're standing in silence. Jesus looks up in the midst of one of these breaths, looks over and sees his mom, locks eyes with her. He sees the pain and the sorrow Think of Eve in the garden, Genesis 3. If she only would have known as she looked up at that fruit hanging from the tree what this would do, maybe she would have thought differently. But as you and I know full well, as sinners, we fall into temptation. And so we need a Savior. Jesus, in his human nature, is the eldest son, he's the firstborn. It is the job of the firstborn to provide for his mother in the event that his father is no longer there. Now, we don't know in Scripture what happened to his earthly father, Joseph. There's no account of him, but we do know that, is that he's ironically absent. And so scholars believe he probably has passed away at this point. And it makes sense given this account. So looking up in his pain and anguish, being cut off from the Father who is now pouring down wrath that we deserve upon our Savior, 
he says this. He looks over and sees John. And he says, John, can you watch my mom for me? It says from there on, John took Mary, the mother of Jesus, to his house, and that was it. She became his mom. He cared for her, loved her, watched over her, just like he would his own mother. And I see three things in this. Number one, we are called to stand by the cross of Jesus. That's our job. That's how we come to Christ. With Christ is his cross. That's the Jesus we're talking about. If we have everything else, if we acknowledge every miracle, if we acknowledge every teaching he taught, but don't have the cross of Jesus, we don't have the right Jesus. Secondly, there is going to be pain in this life. There is going to be hurt, and you and I will lose people we love. It is the hard, ironic consequence of sin in, in the world that we experience firsthand. But God, knowing this, has provided something, and we get a glimpse of it in this scripture. He's provided for us his church, which is made up of the body of believers of anyone and everyone who's come to the cross of Jesus Christ. And even in my own life, I look back uh, a few years ago when I lost uh, one of my grandfathers, and I, I miss him, I care for him. He was so special and so unique. He taught me so much. He cared about me. I cared about him. And in his absence, even though I still miss him, I'm amazed at what God has brought me here. Just like he united John and Mary at the cross, he's united me with grandfathers, extra grandfathers, uh, fathers, brothers, sisters in Christ. And that is what he's done for us, and that is his goal for us. He's still uniting us together. So my question to you is this. Who has he brought alongside you, believer, to comfort you during this time? And then also, who has he called you to take care of, to comfort, to be there for? And lastly, this is what I see. As a believer in Christ, when Christ gives a command or a call or an order, whatever you want to call it, I see it out of the love coming from the cross saying, can you take care of my mom for me? Can you do this for me? The Bible says that Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And it's not burdensome if you're a believer in Christ. This is not about being perfect. This is about the love and intent and heart behind when Jesus says something to us. He's saying, can you do this for me? Can you watch over Feed my sheep, Peter. Can you teach people about me? Parents, can you raise your kids with a knowledge of me? Can you tell them about me early so they can know that I'm here, that they can come to me? Husbands, can you love your wives like I have loved you? Wives, can you respect your husbands? He's doing this not as a command to earn, but he's doing this from the point of the cross, always from the point of the cross, saying, can you do this for me? Dear woman, he said, here is your son. And to the, to the disciple, he said, here is your mother. Eloi, Eloi, lama samachthani, which means my God, my God, 
why have you forsaken me? There is no story more tragic than this. There's no monologue more heart-wrenching than Jesus' question of why. This is a cry from the depths of his soul, from his innermost being. It's a call of grief and loss. You cannot get any more honest of a question. This question begs more questions. To me, it made me think, why would Jesus even think he was forsaken? Or even more, why did Jesus call God my God, my God, and not my Father? Let us look at three observations from this text. First and most obvious, Jesus cries out because of his own personal sorrows. He is God, yes, but he's also a man. Our Savior is dealing with physical pain and emotional taunts and mockery from the crowds. Of course, he would feel forsaken. More than that, this question is word for word from Psalm 22. So it is Jesus' prophetic sermon. And finally, the statement shows Jesus' priestly sympathy. He understands us. He knows what it feels like to be alone, rejected, hurt, and full of despair. His personal sorrow, let's look back at this. It is close to 3 p.m. Jesus has been falsely accused, as we've mentioned before. He's been sentenced. He is crucified. He's hanging between heaven and earth. He bleeds from open wounds. His hands, which broke five loaves and two fishes, who fed more than 5,000 people, are stretched out and nailed to the cross. His feet, which climbed the hills and valleys of Jerusalem, Galilee, Samaria, Bethesda, these feet which walked on the waves of the ocean are shaking and spasming in pain. Jesus, who was surrounded by men and women and children who hung on his every word, are now he is faced with the same crowd crying, crucify him. They hurl insults at him. They rejoice in his suffering. In this hour of deep physical and emotional trauma, Jesus needs comfort. He needs a friend's voice, and not even God in heaven, his own Father, is saying anything. Heaven is silent. Instead of the, instead of the whole... Instead of seeing the most beautiful act of God speaking, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. It is now dark as night. All has turned a deaf ear to Jesus. And here is where Jesus calls out to his father, where are you? But all the more, this is also a prophetic sermon. From the cross, Jesus still is continuing to preach the gospel. He is now using the cross as his pulpit. He's now using Psalms 22 as the introduction of his sermon. Because the very words the Pharisees are mocking Jesus with is found in Psalms 22, 7 and 8, which says he saved others, but he himself 
cannot save himself. This prophetic psalm by King David even describes the day of crucifixion in clear detail. In verses 14 through 17, it reveals that all of Jesus' bones are out of joint and that his heart turned to wax. Psalms 22:16 tells of the crucifixion. They have pierced my hands and my feet. The guards dividing up Jesus' garments in Matthew 27 is found in Psalms 22:18. Even in Jesus' suffering, he is reminding his audience that God fulfills his word and that their Messiah has come to save the world from their sins. But finally, Jesus is a high priest. One of our comforts through times of hardship and trial and pain is to know that we are not alone, right? This is what a high priest's role is. He is a mediator between God and man. He is the go-between. How can anyone relate with us if they themselves have not faced the same pain? Who then could calm us during our darkest hour? but our Lord Jesus Christ, who fell forsaken and lonely in that dark hour. Jesus is the source of our comfort. Jesus is our high priest, and he identifies with our sorrows and our weaknesses. When we face our deepest hardship, Jesus can relate saying, I know what you're going through. I know what it feels like to hurt. I know what it feels like to ask the question, where are you, God? As our high priest, Jesus not only was offering his own body as an atonement for our sins, but he was also sympathizing with our weak state. And so when we read this account of Jesus' deep cry of grief, we are confident that he truly is our Emmanuel, God with us. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? John 19, 28 says, Later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. And we all know what it's like to be thirsty, don't we? To endure those hard summer days or that grueling day of work or even those sports practices from when we were in high school where the only thing that we want is that cold glass of water. And when we think of these experiences, we're only beginning to understand what Jesus was going through as he had been on the cross for almost six hours, as he had lost an incredible amount of blood and was dehydrated incredibly. And he says, I am thirsty. But what I want us to realize is that this wasn't just some pointless detail of the cross, that just like everything God does, it wasn't just something random. That it was actually a part of God's plan for Jesus to suffer in this way. He had spoken of it beforehand in the Old Testament. In Psalm 69, 21, the psalmist, ultimately speaking of Jesus, says, They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. And so that was likely the scripture that Jesus was here fulfilling in John chapter 19. And that was the part of God's plan that he was completing. And so not only did God plan for Jesus' thirsting and his great wisdom, but he also had a great purpose for it. 
And so through Jesus' thirsting and through his suffering and his agony upon the cross that we've been hearing about through these statements, he was providing us, he was providing you with something. And ironically, it was through him experiencing this intense lack of thirst, this lack of water, that he was then providing us with water. But not just any water. But it's the same water that he speaks of in John chapter 4 when he meets the Samaritan woman by the well. And in their conversation, he says to her, everyone who drinks this water, in reference to the physical water at the well, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And that's what he purchased for us through all of his agony upon the cross and through him fulfilling the scripture of him thirsting. That's what he bought for us. And so now we can rejoice and we can rest in what he's done. We can rejoice in the forgiveness of sins and the fact that we get to spend eternity with our God. And we can rest because Jesus did it all on the cross. He didn't leave any punishment for us to do. He checked all of the boxes. He did everything that was needed. Just like the beginning of our verse says, where Jesus knew that all was now completed. He did it all for us, and so we can just rest. And to those of us who are still dying, not just of a physical thirst, but who are dying of this spiritual thirst for the living water that God holds out to us, listen to these beautiful words in Revelation 21.6, where God says, To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. And the only way that he could say that, the only way that he could offer it to us without a cost to ourselves, is if he went through every part of God's plan, every part of the suffering, even this thirsting, even this scripture that he fulfilled and went through for us, to where he says, I am thirsty. Luke twenty-three forty-six. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. I see three telling things about Jesus in this statement. First of all, he quotes scripture. Here he quotes part of Psalm 31.5, where King David wrote, Into your hands I commit my spirit. Deliver me, Lord, my faithful God. Psalm 31 is considered a psalm of trust or a psalm of confidence in God. It was probably taught to every Jewish child as a bedtime prayer. I can remember my kids growing up. I always tried to pray with them every night. I really felt that this was uh, an important part of Proverbs 22, 6, where it says, train up a child in the way they should go. Quoting scripture was a constant way of life for Jesus. He mostly took from the book of Psalms, but if you remember when he was tempted in the wilderness, he resisted the devil by taking from Deuteronomy. Matthew 4 tells us that uh, when he, after he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, and the devil came to him and said, if you are the son of God, 
tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus said to him, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. 1 Corinthians 10.13, God tells us that whenever we're tempted, he's always going to provide a way out for us. I believe the most common way that God gives us against temptation is his word. Do you use God's word when you're tempted? And more than that, I believe he gives us his word for whenever we're feeling anxious or afraid or victimized or unsure or persecuted. Jesus knew the word and he taught the word. In John 8, he says, if you hold my teachings, you are really my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You can't quote something that you don't know. You, you, you need a full arsenal. An empty arsenal is ineffective and unproductive. And God tells us one way that we could fill our arsenal in Psalm 1, where we delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night. The, special, uh, the uh, second telling thing about Jesus I see here is, was his special relationship to the Father. King David doesn't use Father in Psalm 31. That special intimate relationship was not established in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, all of David's Psalms, he addresses God by his name, Jehovah. It was only until Jesus made it possible by a sacrifice on the cross that we can have this special and intimate relationship with the Father. Like Daniel was saying, the Bible tells us that we can now call God, Abba. And another way to translate Abba would be Daddy. God says we can call him Daddy. John 1.12 says, Yet to all who received him, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And now because we are his children, Galatians 4.6 says, God sent the spirit of his son Jesus into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Daddy. And the third telling thing I see about Jesus is that he puts his complete trust in the Father, even in death. The word commit here means to entrust someone for safekeeping. It's like putting something in a safety deposit box. It's like if you were to take your most valuable possession that you had and put it in the safest vault on earth. Jesus tells us in John 10 that when we entrust our lives to God, no one can snatch that life out of his hand. One of the first mentions of trusting God is in Exodus 14 when the Israelites saw how God dealt with the Egyptians and they feared the Lord and they put their trust in him. And when we see the hand of God in our own lives, when he does some miraculous thing for us, it's easy to trust God. But like the Egyptians, sometimes we get spiritual amnesia where we forget what God has done and 
the next time our, we're challenged, uh, we tend to let doubt or fear creep in. Don't wait until your last breath to trust God. This wasn't a deathbed prayer. Jesus trusted the Father from the beginning of his life to the end of his life. Jesus said, believe in God, believe also in me. And Paul tells us in Colossians 3, set your minds on the things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So to sum up the statement, know and use the word. Remember Abba Father is God and trust God because you're safe in him. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Good job, gentlemen. Proud of all of you. They do a good job. Jesus cried out, it is finished. And he bowed his head and released his spirit. Of course, he's in control. He's God the Son. He doesn't just die. He gives the command to his own spirit, it's time to die. And then he dies. Mission accomplished. It might be tempting for people to see, oh, a Failure. Who's ever heard of a crucified Savior, a, a, a conquering crucified one? It doesn't make sense. So Jesus is going to say a victory shout. Everything that I came to do, I have completed. It is finished. It wasn't that he was killed because he had good work to do. It was his good work to be killed. So from the foundation of the world, the lamb had been slain. Revelation chapter 13 says, from before this earth was spinning in space, in eternity past, God already saw what needed to happen and set the plan in motion before there was an earth. So Jesus just wants everybody to know it wasn't a whoops. The bad guys didn't win. It was God's plan, and he says, it's done. Now, that phrase, Jesus was a businessman for many years. He was a carpenter, and he had to write that exact phrase because it also means paid in full over the invoices in his carpenter shop. Paid in full. That's what got us into this mess. Sin, the wages of sin is death. That's what happened. And the day that you sin, you will die. And that's how death entered into this world. And that is why we're in trouble. And that is why Jesus came to save us. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. And so there's this gigantic balloon payment hanging over everybody's life. It's appointed unto men once to die, and then the judgment. And Jesus is saying, if you believe in me, you'll never die. He's not talking about physical death. He's talking about the second death. That when you die physically, you must stand before God. And if you do not know him, 
then you must be sentenced. For the wages of sin is death in this regard. The second death, the Bible calls it eternal separation. And that is what Jesus came to remedy. And that is what he means when he says it is finished. Sins have been paid for, fully paid. All of our sins, past, present, and future. He's saying when he says it is finished, he's saying no other work is required. No other work is accepted. I've paid your way. I've made peace with God the Father. Heaven's door is swinging wide open. The very next verse says this. He breathes his last. He says, it's all paid. And the next verse says, and the curtain in the temple that separated an unholy man from the holiness of God was torn from top to bottom. He's saying it's finished. Paid in full. Come on in. Have confidence and assurance. There's nothing to be afraid of. It is finished. Every last cent you owed God, every evil thought, every defiling word, every single wrong motive, every last sinful deed paid in full. It's over. Done. A clean conscience, eternal life, reconciliation with God, life everlasting. It's done. It's yours. With one simple caveat to the whole world, whosoever believes, there are two options. It's the prepay plan or self-pay. <laughs> it's self-pay or prepay. And now when somebody pulls out their wallet nowadays and says, hey, it's on me, I, it's okay, it's on you, I'm going to let you pay, all right? Well, Jesus has pulled out the wallet, and he says, I've paid your way, all you have to do is let me, and that's just trust in him. He says, it is finished, it's over, so now... We can get on with the business of life, enjoying this beautiful life that God has given us with love and joy and peace in Jesus' life that is really life indeed. And also to be about the business of telling others who don't know that it is finished. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these beautiful truths that set our hearts free, encourage us, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time of communion. We ask, Father, that your Holy Spirit would impact our hearts with these truths and help us to, to be encouraged to remember your great love that you have for us. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Well, let me explain how communion will work. As always, if you are born again Christian, you're welcome to partake uh, in Participate in communion with us. You don't have to belong to the rock. Uh, we don't have membership anyway. So if, <laughs> if you are a Christian, if you're not a Christian, it just doesn't, uh, it won't mean anything. Communion, just wonderful metaphor. Jesus said, I want you to be doing this thing. I want, do want you to know that back in the day, it wasn't a little plastic cup with a little bit of grape juice or wine in there and a little, little piece of matzah. It was a home fellowship group with a big dinner and big, hot, fresh loaves of bread 
And they had a, what they called it, a love meal, an agape meal. But things have changed. We've got hundreds of people coming to worship on a Sunday morning with limited time, and we're not going to be able to do that. Uh, And so, you know, the Lord accepts what we have in symbolic uh, language, as it were. And so listen to this. You know, uh, this is very intriguing to me. How do we get into this pickle? The Lord said to our parents, don't eat or you will die. And the remedy Jesus ties to his body and work on the cross is a meal. And he says, eat for the remedy and you will live. In the beginning, we ate when we shouldn't have eaten and died. Now he says, I command you to eat, be nourished of Christ and the cross. And whoever eats, Jesus says, whoever eats my flesh, he says, meaning of the work of the cross. If you ingest that, just like a meal keeps you alive physically, this meal of the cross ingested within through faith will not just keep you alive, but keep you alive spiritually. Spiritually give you eternal life. Just a beautiful, beautiful gift of the Lord. And so you will be served the cup and the bread, as we call it. Hold on. We're going to worship the Lord. Make sure everybody gets the cup and the bread. I'll come back. We'll pray, and we'll take communion together. I love what 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4 says. Our, our God, our loving Savior, wants all people to come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. And, and then Peter adds to the thought, God is not willing that anyone perish, but that everybody would come to repentance and trust in him and live. So Jesus will stand on, on, in a meadow, and he has lots of followers there, and he says, I'm the bread of heaven that came down to give my flesh and my body as a payment for your sins. And the bread of heaven, he says, and then he feeds everybody with all the bread. And he just says, just so you know, I am the bread of heaven. This is what I can do. And he does a miracle with the bread. But he's born in Bethlehem, house of bread. And he's laid in a manger. And the word for manger is to eat. Eat the bread of heaven, born in the house of bread, Bethlehem, and laid in a to-eat feeder. (laughs) Come on, everyone. He's not kidding around. Why? Because he loves us. He says, I didn't come in the world to, to the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. I'm not planning to harm you, but to give you a hope and a future. So on the night, He was betrayed. He took the bread and he broke it. He said, think of it as my body. Get it inside you. Consume it. Be nourished by me. And you will live forever. Let's eat the bread. And then he says, think of my blood as as the new covenant. No longer is it up to do this or die. I've done the work. Trust me and live. It's the new covenant sealed in his blood. And if God shed his blood for you, who's against you? Who can accuse you? 
You're going to stand before the judge and the judge has nail scars on his glorified body to prove that it was finished and paid in full. You've got no worries if the judge is the one who paid your way in. Amen. <laughs> Let's drink. Why don't you stand and I'll ask God's blessing upon us this evening. Now, Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, I ask a blessing on these, your children, who have believed on your name and received you. I pray, Father, that the peace of God would rest upon them, that the protection of God would surround them, that the provision of God would meet their every need. Father, and that you would establish us and encourage us and strengthen us in these tumultuous times, the time when the world has gone mad and there's threats and rumors of wars everywhere, just like you said, Lord. And you said, when you see these things happening, lift up your eyes because your redemption is closer than you think. So, Heavenly Father, keep us by your power. Make us ready, Lord, and alert so that it, what, the day doesn't take us overtake us like a thief in the night, but that we be ready when that trumpet sounds. In Jesus' name. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.